Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about all the ways we're talking and not talking about the climate crisis. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana Ease Hegler. And we're so excited to be launching season two today. Um, we had a lot of fun during season one, but we also learned a lot and we're planning to do things a little bit differently this season. Yeah, we're going to have more episodes focused on specific themes and put less effort into doing a comprehensive review of the entire climate news cycle. <laughs> we have a newsletter for that now. Right. And if you're not subscribed to that, look for sign up information in the show notes and on our Twitter. Speaking of themed episodes, I'm really, really excited about this one. Me too. This episode, we're going to be talking about the great reckoning that's happening in media outlets all over the country for the past month. And we have the perfect guest along to talk about that with us. We do. Our guest today is Kendra Pierre-Louis, formerly of the New York Times Climate Desk and currently at Gimlet. She is a super smart reporter and talented writer. Also, she is a black woman, and there are precious few of us in the climate storytelling space, so I'm especially glad to have her on. Me too. Also, I have like known Kendra and her writing for ages. I loved her stuff at Popular Science. I appreciate her hatred of mayo. Um, <laughs> same, same. <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited. She always has really smart takes on both the media and climate, which are like our two favorite things to talk about. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, you think it's time? It's time to talk about climate. Welcome, Kendra. We're really, really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah. So I've heard you say before that you've had an unconventional path to journalism. Mm -hmm. What exactly was that path? Like, how did you get into journalism and specifically climate journalism? So I started getting interested in climate issues sort of when I was in college, but I was an economics major. I wasn't like a science major or anything. Um, but I did take some classes on sustainable development, and then I graduated, took a bunch of sort of random, odd, not odd jobs, but like jobs that I didn't really know what I was going to do with. So like I worked corporate communications for the Princeton Review for a little bit, and then I moved to France and taught English for a little bit. And when I got back from France, I was working at a job at sort of, um, you know, a public policy NGO, I guess is a good way of phrasing it. And a friend was like, you mm -hmm. never shut up about the environment. Maybe you should do something in that space. <laughs> so I applied to grad school for sustainable development. And I went to this <laughs> tiny school in Vermont on a hill and graduated with a master's degree in public policy analysis and advocacy in sustainable development. And originally when I w went into the program, I had this idea that I would like go overseas and travel the world and, I don't know, do development work or something. And when I got out of the program, the one thing that was very clear to me is that if we want to do anything about the environment, you sort of have to start in the United States just because of how disproportionate our impact is. Um, mm -hmm. And so after that, I bounced around a bunch of jobs. I feel like each one of the times that I finished school was sort of punctuated by a recession of some sort or the other. So that, that yeah. is also a factor in the bouncing around in jobs. I was interning with a sustainability consultancy firm after grad school and I had this idea for a book and I got a book deal and shortly after I got a job working at one of the larger museums in New York City kind of doing work that was closer to environmental stuff but it just wasn't like a great fit so I bounced around a little bit more mm -hmm. and finally eventually ended up working for an affordable housing nonprofit doing more sustainability stuff 
um, and mm-hmm. communication stuff. And at that time, I, that was around the time I started freelancing. I won or I got a mentor through the Society of Environmental Journalism, journalists mm-hmm. off of the strength of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And I started freelancing and I gave myself essentially a year where I was like, either you make enough money from freelancing so you can quit or you get a job in journalism or you go to journalism school. Right. And the first two didn't happen, so I went to J school. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I applied to a few programs, and I ended up going to MIT. And I finished mm-hmm. MIT. I started MIT in 2015, and I finished in 2016. Um, and then from there, it was pretty straightforward. You know, I did like an internship when I was at MIT, and then I got a job at PopSci. But it was a lot of bouncing around. A lot, you know, like the first piece I ever got published in a national publication was before I ever went to J school. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. I, yeah, that was like Newsweek, I think. Um, and then I got right before, right as I was going to MIT, um, I got published in the Washington Post. Um, but it wasn't sustainable and I couldn't get a job in journalism. So it just made, sort of made sense. Um, and then after mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I after I graduated, um, I did a little bit of freelancing and then pretty quickly went to work for Popper Science. And then from there, I went to The Times and now I'm at Gimlet. So you say like you never shut up about the environment. What were, when did you start getting freaked out about the environment? I, I still don't know if I'm freaked out. Maybe I should be. But um, I, I think especially from <laughs> interested in definitely from a place of like curiosity and wonder. Um, my freshman mm-hmm. year, um, uh, we were, my freshman year of college, we were required to take these like freshman writing seminars. And it was so like they really wanted to encourage better writing. But the way that you applied for them is you sort of rank them from one to five and whichever one fit in your schedule is the one that you got. So like you're supposed to pick all of mm-hmm. your other classes first and then they would like try and slot in this writing seminar. And the one mm-hmm. that I took my second semester was on experiencing the natural world. And the teacher was a writer, but she was also a biologist by training. And she would spend every Friday we would have to go on a field trip. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes it would just, I went to Cornell for undergrad, so it was in Ithaca, which is pretty outdoorsy. And so sometimes it would just be like hiking the gorges on campus. There was a weekend trip where we had to go cross-country skiing and we went, Cornell owns its own maple syrup producing lab, basically. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <That's fancy. laughs> it's a very large Nice. <laughs> so we like went cross-country skiing. Um, during this camping trip, and she, she didn't tell us where we were going, but we were like in this forest, and it turns out we were skiing to this maple syrup lab as they were sugaring, and I got to eat maple syrup out of the boiler fresh for the first oh, time wow. in my life. Uh-huh. And so I feel like a lot of my thinking and a lot of my interest kind of were framed around that class, which was, you know, we definitely talked about some of the problems with the environment and like, you know, a lot of environmental catastrophes. I think we read a chapter from Ishmael. But a lot of it was mm-hmm. just like wonder and joy and getting to experience it. What would you say is the the key difference between a science journalist and a climate journalist? I definitely think of myself like I trained, I went to grad school for science mm-hmm. journalism and I definitely anchor everything in the science of climate mm-hmm. change, I think. But I think the biggest difference is that like, I don't just, or I try very rarely not to just stop at the science, right? So I'm not just going to tell you that the earth has warmed by whatever one point whatever up to 1.1 degrees celsius like that isn't particularly useful information for most people right. <laughs> um mm-hmm. right I, like i think the the biggest difference is that it's not enough to sort of chronicle the changes you need to contextualize it to people so that they understand why it matters and also mm-hmm. how it impacts their lives yeah it really really matters that you, 
um, that it's not just a science. You have to weave in culture. You have to weave in context. You have to weave in history um, when you're trying yeah. to tell these stories. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that, though, because I feel like that's something that we talk about a lot, that like a lot of climate coverage still doesn't do that. And it does stick with just the science and not all of the social implications. Yeah, for sure. Like, so I think the things that you get when like you start off as a journalist in climate science is, Mm -hmm. you know, like I know how to read a study. Like, like those kinds of things I think are really, really important. I know whether or not you should report on the study, right? Like, you know, I've had definitely had fights with editors over whether certain things should be reported on. What do you think are the most important climate stories not being told right now? So I don't think we're adequately covering solutions. Mm. Yeah. That's one. I don't think we're, I don't think we're covering solutions. And also I don't think we're covering solutions that aren't sexy. Yes. I was just going to say that. Like we are, but it's like all the wrong ones. I don't know. It's yeah. 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 I I think we like very sexy, very new, very tech oriented solutions. Mm -hmm. Um, And there Mm -hmm. are lots and lots of things that we can be doing that are not sexy. Where are all the efficiency stories? I feel like we never hear about that. Yeah, yeah, weatherization is a really hard one like to do. Um, What's weatherization? It's basically your house leaks and it's making it so it leaks less. It's insulating. It's like caulking. It's really boring, really basic things that often don't even require that much money. You know, right. like if you've ever been right. in a house in winter and you've sort of put the plastic over the windows to stop, mm-hmm. that is because those windows are bad <laughs> or they're not yeah. sealed properly. Right. So like if you just properly insulate your home, you reduce then you won't your have heating that and problem. cooling costs. Right. So you're u- using less energy. So you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions and you've noticed right. no difference. Right. right. Like you haven't right. fundamentally changed your life. But your energy bill goes down. So that's just like one that like is pretty kind of low hanging. And the other thing I think is we don't talk enough about how much the ways in which we live are embedded in the structures of our society. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, Mary and I live in New York, so we don't have to have a car. Right. I'm yeah. guessing where Not, Amy yeah, lives is relatively rural and she, you kind of I need a car. a car. And it kind of has um, to be like a four wheel drive car because we get 20 feet of snow in a month in the winter. <laughs> so <laughs> oh then my people God. are like, I can't believe Amy gets the you. worst of all worlds. Yeah, people are like, I can't believe you have an SUV and you claim to care about the environment. I'm like, I literally, I couldn't get out of my house if I didn't have that car. So right. I'm a little bit like, yeah, tied in here. Right. And so right. how do we make it so that you're less right, tied exactly. in? Right. Yeah. Like, like, I think that there's so much focus on individuals and not enough on like a lot of the fact that like, the reason I don't own a car is not because I'm a good person. Right. <laughs> it's because I live in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Uh, I remember I didn't learn to drive until I was 27. And the year before I learned to drive, a friend was like, oh, I just assumed you didn't know how to drive because you were environmental. <laughs> and I was like, no, I just never had to learn. <laughs> like, literally... main reason we wanted to have you on the show Kendra is also because you know you're awesome and we wanted to have you on the show since you know we launched yes, it honestly you've been on shortlist for it's a long true. time yeah but now is just the perfect time to have you on because there's just been so much going on with 
the media, I call it the great media meltdown of 2020, where like, it's like the Me Too movement, but for race, and we're going to talk for the sake of this show specifically about how it's affected the media industry. So just really quickly, in the past month, we've seen public resignations of top editors at the New York Times in the opinion section, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, Bon Appetit, Pittsburgh Gazette, which one of my favorites, uh, black staff were told that they couldn't cover the protests because they would be biased. Um, the LA Times had this internal uprising because of insensitive coverage of the protests and its hiring practice, and that seems to still be going on. They also lost a food editor. Oh, that's right. The food editor. Yeah. He stepped down for sexual harassment, mm-hmm. but apparently it was a toxic workspace thing. And then just now today, well, I think the Refinery29's global president and chief contact officer has stepped in. Wow. Yep. Um, yep. That was awesome. another one that got... Yeah. <laughs> life moves at you fast, yeah. <laughs> Twenty. That's the motto of 2020s. Life comes Ooh. at you fast. Um, and also Vogue has been in hot water for its hiring practices and content and everything. So it just really seems like, you know... Yeah, it's, it's all kind of coming to a head. And it seems like it all started, um, I can't really tell which one came first. Was the New York Times op-ed from Senator Tom Cotton or the Philadelphia Inquirer's op-ed about Buildings Matter? It seems like they were both at the same time. Yeah. And both of them kind of uh, sparked this um, public show of, of protests from the black staff and people of color working there. So at the New York Times... Uh, people took to Twitter to say this op-ed is uh, running this piece. It puts black New York Times staff in danger. I think that was Mm -hmm. like the running tweet. And then at the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, black staff and staff of color did a mass sick out. The the, tech team at the Times also did a virtual walkout. They didn't work for a day. Right. Yeah, maybe it would be useful to, like, just recap what was in the Tom Cotton op-ed and just, like, some of the optics around it. I'm going to put Amy on the spot because she wrote about that for the newsletter and knows all about it. Yeah, I mean... So Tom Cotton, who drinks milk. Yeah, who eats birthday cake regularly and drinks milk and makes chocolate milk in his mouth with milk and a Hershey square. He was tweeting about this and then turned it into an op-ed that he... um, thought that the the president should send in uh, military forces to uh, crush the protests. And he, um, I mean, the the op-ed included a bunch of inaccuracies, too. So there were a lot of things around, um, you know, what the protesters were doing and the logistics of sending military in in the first place and, you know, all of that. Like, it was just... Honestly, it just read like a ranty right wing Twitter thread that I would just ignore. You know? mm-hmm. But but here it was yeah. in the New York Times opinion section. And I think the headline was Mr. President's. But they asked for the it. Troops. Yeah, they it turned out we right. found out later yeah. that, in fact, that had been commissioned, not pitched. So that was I was like, oh, my God. Right. I think it was um, Doreen St. Felix tweeted right. about like oh my God, I bet this was like, you know, hey, um, interesting tweet. Do you want to turn it into an op-ed? And then it turned out to totally be that. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen anything like that where the staff of a paper and particularly the, and it wasn't just the black staff, but it seems like it was led by the black staff publicly, you know, said, I don't fuck with this. 
Right, um, because it's actually, um, so I think there's an important thing to point out, which is a Times has two sides. One is the newsroom side and one, it, which is the opinion side. And opinion has more latitude in what they're allowed to tweet. Mm. Um, the newsroom mm-hmm. side is regulated by social media guidelines that you can Google. They're public. Um, and one yeah. of them is you're not allowed to disparage the institution, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Do you think that's probably true at other papers, too? Or is that, like, really unique to New York Times? Um, I think it's true. I think it's true of other papers, too. Yeah. P- other papers, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I think it's worth noting, I guess it's three things. One is that there are those guidelines, but they're not equally applied. Mm. So like some people can get away with tweeting things more than other people can get away with. Um, And generally the line is what makes someone uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. And so obviously there are biases within that, right? Because there there are class and there are race implications of who gets to be the arbiter of what is acceptable content. Um, Right. And then the third thing is that like, not everyone, so the Times has a union, but not everyone who tweeted that tweet was in the union. Yeah, um, which means it was even more remarkable, right? Because yes, they took a greater they risk. Were, they were taking a bigger risk. And also, I think, though, there's a reason why the claim that they made was that it, it, it affected the safety of um, staff members because employers are required yeah. to legally provide a safe working environment. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, punishing people for that statement edges like teeters on the edge of I believe of um, employment law because mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. you are allowed to speak publicly about work conditions right and you right. can't stop employees from like discussing work conditions for obvious reasons um, yeah. I should say I have was not you know I was out I was not employed by the New York Times I was out the door at that yeah. point um, so this mm-hmm. is not coming from, I had no, I'm not privy to any of those conversations. I know what you know based on Twitter. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this yeah. This is my yeah. best, like, speculation. Right. I guess is the yeah. way of putting it. Yeah. But the union also came out against the uh, op-ed, I believe, just they the next did. day. Yeah. So it it was a pretty remarkable rebuke from within the organization and with outside of Mm -hmm. it too because this is definitely not the first time the new york times opinion section has pissed people off right this is not the first time there's been like a public uproar brett stevens exists so this felt really different and i wonder if it's like also because of like the larger protests which just seem to have a whole different hold on the country i was listening Um, to um code switch recently and they were talking they interviewed a sociologist i want to say who had said back in March, essentially, that we were going to have a bunch of social movements right now. She, like, didn't... I think it was a she. She, like, didn't predict this <laughs> at all. I want to be really clear. But essentially, um, <clears throat> one of the things that they said on the podcast about why they think this time is different is because one of the things that kind of creates social unrest is distrust in the mm-hmm. government. And I think if you're a Black American you've kind of had an undercurrent of distrust in the government for a while. But if you're a white American, I don't know if that's been as true in such a visceral way. And I think Mm -hmm. if you're an aware person and you're looking at how the federal government or maybe even how your state has been handling COVID and looking at across the board at Canada or looking, you know, at New Zealand, (laughs) New Zealand, uh, Taiwan, Korea, South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, I could keep Mm -hmm. going. Um, Yeah. 
you are asking questions like, why are we not more like them? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So COVID, I think, has, has kind of sowed mistrust in a way that I don't think existed before for larger swaths of people in the United States. Yeah. Um, and I think then George Floyd happening kind of fomented, again, this undercurrent of mistrust in police officers who are essentially actors of the state. And then seeing the brutality on mm -hmm. display by mm -hmm. police officers who are, who are, you know, in who ironically, the protests are happening because of police brutality. <laughs> and they're and just like blatantly doing it brutality. again. I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And right. then the and fact then, that they were beating up white yes. people, I think, actually. Yeah. And tear gassing white people. And journalists. Old people. And, and journalists. specifically journalists. The, and, and then I think so all of that was happening. But then when you're reading a lot of the reporting... And I, I did write about this for Neiman. It was like violence was happening, but yes. it like wasn't specific. And I think that the, all of that kind of like people who were paying attention and seeing this and feeling this, and then that happened. And you're telling it, you're essentially putting out an opinion piece asking for an escalation of even more violence against, you know, black yeah. and brown people in this yeah. country. I yeah, think. it's e egregious. Right. And the fact that it was. And, and I think that's kind of what broke the logjam in media. And that's like when people are like, I'm getting paid this much. This person is this toxic. Mm -hmm. Like there have been whisper networks forever. Journals of color have whisper networks forever. I can probably give you a list, you know, five pages long of people that I will never work for because of based on the whisper network. But like that's yeah. not healthy, right? Because yeah. you have to be in journalism for a certain amount of time to get access to those secret mm -hmm. networks, which means that you have to undergo a certain degree of abuse. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Before For someone are... who doesn't know what a whisper network is, how would you explain it? Because I, uh, I understand, but I would be interested in your words. Yeah. So a whisper network essentially is uh, communities of people. So there, there are ones for journals of color, I think. And then there are also one for women journalists, which essentially tells you which institutions or people, um, you know, by word of mouth, essentially, you should not work for mm -hmm. or like ways of navigating around those structures. Right. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's also like it exists in different um, industries too. So it exists in like the nonprofit world, like which organization not to work for. Um, and I think people often think of whisper networks as working among those with power. Like you get blackballed in any given industry, but like, and then, um, but they don't think about how marginalized people also use whisper networks. And so they're always like, well, we put the job out and then people of color didn't apply or women didn't apply. And they didn't, they're not realizing that like, oh, actually they talk about you right. too. Your yeah, reputation I, I matters too. That. I did. I yeah. Did treat that. I said something, I can't remember the exact tweeting, but I was like, if you have a job application out, like no people of color are applying. You're, it's probably because it reports to a toxic person and they right, know it. Right. <laughs> I just thought of another reason why I think this time was different mm -hmm. in the media because so many media outlets sort of posted these things like we're in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, like Refinery29 and all these other places did like the Blackout right. Tuesday. And because this movement is different, the response to them just being like, we're listening and learning was way more of like, you've been listening and learning for a long exactly. fucking time. Like you should know what to yes. do now. Like if you're still learning, you failed the class. Like, yes. sorry. The um, so it's the number of journalists who were showing receipts, like the yeah. number of people who are coming forward with details who are sort of like, it's not 
my silence is not worth this industry, right. essentially. Right. Exactly. A lot of people feeling like they had so little to lose this time. Yeah. 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 Can you talk a little bit, Kendra, about the journalism awards uh, problem, too, and how race plays into who gets kind of put forward for what? So it's very different, obviously, if you're freelance, because yeah. oftentimes if you're freelance, you have to submit yourself generally because news organizations mm-hmm. want to promote their staff for obvious reasons. They're like, we're paying you a salary. We want to yeah, hold right. you up. <laughs> um, that said, so the way most submission, most awards, the way they work in journalism is you have to pay to submit. So that's just like mm-hmm. an obvious thing. And so most institutions make decisions about whose work will get submitted. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. oftentimes there are kind of two ways in which that sort of prioritizes white men. First, it's just sort of like where people get placed in the newsroom and what beats they're mm-hmm. allowed to cover. Mm-hmm. And very often, you know, like the political reporting is skews very white yeah. male, and that's considered a prestige placement. So, so there's just like that fundamental aspect of like who gets to be in yep. jobs, and then who gets the time to do sort of these bigger, deeper right. projects that are sort of held up as prestige. And often again, there's a bias towards giving white men that role, and you'll often hear in newsrooms like someone will come up with an idea and they'll be like, oh, you're not, they won't say it this explicitly, but they're like, this other white man is a perfect person for this kind of a piece that you just right. raised. And you're like, mm-hmm. but I just raised it. Like why? Yeah. Um, and that happens all the time. Karen Atia, I'm not sure if that's how you mm-hmm. say your last name. She's an opinion writer at, at Washington Post. And it just came out that this past Pulitzer season, she's in a phenomenal opinion writer, writes really beautiful, well-researched things. And yeah. they didn't include her in a Pulitzer admission this year. They didn't select her work. And so yeah. you can submit on your own. It is an option in many mm-hmm. cases, but then you're taking the cost on your own. So that's yeah. an extra literal financial yeah. cost. And then you have to think through how to package your work together. Mm-hmm. And all of that assumes, of course that you've had the time and the space to do the kind of work that wins awards. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And the reason awards matter, just like broadly, is because there's a cachet, especially with some of the bigger ones, and it can open doors, it can get you better pay, it can do all sorts of things. But oftentimes the people who sort of reap the most benefits from those awards, again, are white men. Yeah. You've written a bit about this, I think, and Kate Aronoff has written about this, but like the... The thing that really annoys me is like the the infiltration of people whose only apparent qualification is that they're yeah. white men. So I'm talking about like, is it Jonathan Safran? Yes. Yeah. Or, or yeah. like um, Jonathan Franz. Yeah, just like arriving yeah. and being like, and like they're all in the same boats. Yeah. And then being upheld as like a valid opinion, right. which for yeah. no for no reason that I can discern, like there doesn't seem to be any like actual understanding of the broader issues or actual wrestling with like the complexities and yes. the context. Uh, but one of the things that I do think has changed is that like now there's more political climate reporting, like climate po- reporting mm-hmm. as a form of political reporting. And yeah. I think that that I have complicated feelings about that mm-hmm. in the mostly because I have complicated feelings about the way we re- re- political reporting happens in yeah. this country broadly. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of inside baseball and a lot of like watching the game and not enough of like, these are people's lives and these policies have consequences. And I need to understand 
the implications of this yeah. policy and this and re- political reporting often doesn't provide that. Yeah. 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 Another thing we wanted to talk about is how like this isn't just yeah. white men. Um, like white women are a big part of this problem. So another part of this fallout has been like we were saying at Refinery 29, it's been a shit show. Vogue has been in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. The Wing, which is not really an outlet, but it's definitely a media yeah. darling and like a connection hotspot for people in media has been um, in hot water. And there's probably a bunch of others that I'm missing. Um, and there was this um, really good piece that came out recently called The End of the Girl Boss is Here. Oh, yeah. um, and I can't resist the urge to read a quick excerpt from yeah. it. So indulge me. I have never been a big white wine person and especially not in the fall, but after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at a hundred different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. The gap between everything that successful men took for granted and everything that ambitious women wanted became outrageous tender for the girl boss's fire. 
Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run was the match that lit the flame. It was, the total, it was a total girl boss move to run again after losing the primary to Obama in 2008. The white girl boss, and so many of them were white, sat at the unique intersection of oppression and privilege. She saw gender, gender inequity everywhere she looked. This gave her something to wage war against. Racial inequity was never really on her radar. Actually, I'm really thrilled to see white women be called to the mat on this stuff because I do feel like a lot of them hide behind patriarchy. Um, and this is beyond just, you know, in the media. I think that like, it's always like dismantle the patriarchy, but like the closer you get, it's like, are you really trying to dismantle the patriarchy or are you just trying to remake it in your yeah. own image? And like, I need to know what the end goal is so I can decide if I belong here or not. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, one of the yeah. biggest differences, though, that I think is important, and I'm going to be really careful about how I say this, is that the role of the media is to be a watchdog. We're supposed to look at government. We're supposed to look at um, companies. Society. Society. Yeah. We're supposed to investigate, and we're supposed to shine a light in dark places. But uh, partly, and Amy might be able to speak more to this than I can, just because of the media consolidation and just the way that media has shaped up in the post-internet age, um, where a lot of media outlets are financially struggling. Um, it's also a very, for lack of a better word, incestuous yeah. very. Uh, field, yeah. right? So, like, you, even though you don't work at publication X, you may not want to piss off publication X because you might want a job there five years right. down the line. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I have, so there is a inherent disincentive to investigate ourselves. Yeah. I mean, this is actually part of why I started doing so much kind of just on my own because um, the the vast majority of national outlets are not open to media criticism of anything that they are also complicit in. They're just not. And like, <laughs> I had a couple of stories yeah. where editors, you know, I would write it, they'd be like, oh yeah, this is great. And then they would just sort of like slowly and surgically remove any mention of anything that they are also like that they have also done in the past or that they still do today or whatever. And I just was like, ugh. the other thing I want to point out is we've talked a lot about race in, in journalism, but I also think it's really important to talk about class yes. and like the level of affluence that a, a lot of people in journalism mm -hmm. have. And also the, the bifurcation of like wealth in journalism. So like entry level job, it is not uncommon for there to be a $20,000 $25,000 a year fellowship for journalism in at an elite publication in a uh, in a high cost city, right? Like, so not that many people can take those jobs, even if you can take those jobs, even if you decide to make it work where you, you do the fellowship during the day and you like wait tables at night. Well, the colleague mm -hmm. that comes from an affluent family and that's giving them money under the table is like using the time that you're working waiting tables to network, right? Like that is like a concrete yeah. difference. And oftentimes they tell people that there's like affluence in in journalism and they look at me and they're like they think you know they think like the upper middle class suburb down the road where like that has a really nice swimming pool and i'm and i'm not talking i mean yes that 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 is true there is also that kind of of wealth in journalism but i'm also talking about like extreme wealth of like generational yeah. wealth like people who yeah. literally don't need to work yeah 
you and can take an unpaid internship i mean that's really like the gateway i mean people who as adults probably don't live on their salary is what i'm telling you yeah like (laughs) yeah like they're no they're out there too they're making decent grown-up money but they are Mm -hmm. so affluent that they don't actually need the money that like you and I live off of to make yeah. our day. Yeah, like they don't need to support themselves with their job. Yeah. And so that totally skews the way that they view the mm-hmm. world and their reporting, mm-hmm. right? In many cases, they yeah. often have more in common with the power structures that they're reporting on than the people that they're ostensibly reporting to. Yeah, for sure. It's not just white people, non-blacks are also responsible for combating anti-blackness. This, I'm glad that people are starting to write about this because I think this is something that I've thought about as a mixed person and also like someone who gets assumed white most of the time. My name's Amy Westervelt. Hello. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely have been in the position where like, you know, things are happening that I know are not quite right and I feel like it's like not my place to say something and I think a lot of people who are in media in general like just need to get over that like it's absolutely your place to say something if you see bad shit happening <laughs> you know um uh, right if you see something exactly, say something exactly yeah so I want to read this uh, like a yeah. little bit from this. Uh, there was an, an op-ed from Amanda Zamora called Overcoming Systemic Racism Begins in Our Own Newsrooms. And uh, and she talks about this a little bit, that like she has grappled with, you know, when when she should say something and, you know, worrying about like appropriateness and respectability, which I actually think is, you were kind of getting at this before, Kendra. I think it's like, part of what's been good about this whole reckoning is that so many people have spoken out that maybe people feel a little bit less like if I say anything, I'm going to ruin my career (laughs) about it. I don't know. What's interesting is that like there are like white men who've been accused of like sexual harassment and plagiarism Mm -hmm. who have managed to fail upward, for lack (laughs) of a better word. Yeah. (laughs) It often just feels like media as an institution has a very thin yes, skin. Yes, very. And so the mm-hmm. difference in those two scenarios is you're you're harming an individual and I'm not minimizing mm-hmm. that, but pointing out flaws with an institution means that the institution has to reckon with it. Has to reckon yeah. with it, right? Like it's much yeah. easier to be like, oh, you did a bad thing to a person who worked for this institution. We'll let you go even. Although they don't always do that. Yeah, like we have HR policies that deal with that. That's true. But there aren't really great policies to point out the fact that your institution is problematic. That's a really good point, I think. Okay, so this is called Overcoming Systemic Racism Begins in Our Own Newsrooms by Amanda Zamora. And it was in Pointer. As much as I've grappled with this dual identity, I know I've also benefited from it. Employers have gladly ticked their diversity boxes on account of my being Hispanic, while I've reaped all the benefits of being white, including the ability to use my voice in ways that my black and brown colleagues never could. And while I know these things, I rarely speak about them. Throughout my 18 years in professional journalism, I have been profoundly uncomfortable claiming my full identity. The Latinx upbringing that informs my desire to make journalism more diverse and responsive to the communities we serve, and the white privilege that affords me a life and career that shouldn't be any more accessible to me, 
simply because I am less of a threat to my white colleagues. But I've come to realize that no matter how much quote unquote good we think we do through our journalism, elevating other voices, exposing wrongdoing, holding the powerful to account, the silence we wield within our own newsrooms is as dangerous as it is hypocritical. I love that. So I do think, I I hope that this is like a broader and more lasting change in media. I gotta say, one of the most obnoxious creatures to me is the woke camera. You know what I mean? Like the ones who like... They like want your adulation and gratitude as like their protectors from all of this other yeah. racism. And like they always see racism as something that exists in other mm-hmm. people. And their job as the good one, because they have deemed themselves right. good, is to like be your shield and be your savior. And it's like, actually, bitch, you're really fucking racist. And I would really love for you to deal yeah. with that. <laughs> and also, okay. like, I will say yeah. that, um, well, there are two things. One, I definitely, it's so fascinating to me. I didn't talk in school until seventh grade. Wow. Um, you know, I would talk. You didn't talk was, in school? Yeah, I would talk if I was picked on, but I wouldn't speak up. You know, I was never one of, I was uh-huh. not a mouthy kid. I was the quiet kid in the corner with her face in a book who never caused mm. any trouble. Um, and then huh. in seventh grade, I had a teacher who, like, kind of pulled me out of my shell, but that was still pretty much de facto my, like, in-school personality mm-hmm. through, mm-hmm. like, until college, really. And I, I bring this up because, like, um, I definitely did speak up at my last job, and it definitely wasn't always welcomed. But I also want to yeah. say that there were people, uh, there were white women who were actually allies, who didn't attract attention to themselves, who quietly did the work. Yeah. Do you know it's possible. I mean? It can yeah. happen. And I just want to acknowledge their existence, <laughs> but also (laughs) like saying it is possible to exist i'm hoping you know there's been this rush of people buying all of these books about race and race theory and i'm hoping some people actually read them and take something away from it but the thing that i think the other reason i wanted to bring up is i actually like i didn't start speaking up until the year i turned into my mid-30s basically and what the way I phrased it and the way that I it worked for me as someone who, like many of us as women who grew up very Catholic, have been sort of conditioned not to be aggressive, to be sort of like quiet, is that I wasn't so much speaking up as so much as I was spreading the discomfort around. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes you're having these interactions <laughs> with people and they're making yeah. me profoundly uncomfortable and they get away yeah. with it, right? They get to be in this yeah. position of feeling comfort while they're pushing their discomfort onto yeah. me. And so mm-hmm. I just rephrased it as like i'm going to share this discomfort like you can have some too we can all be uncomfortable together yeah right And the thing that i realized is that a lot of people a lot of white people or um and i think this isn't just like i think it's probably true of anyone who lives in a place where they're the dominant group Mm -hmm. are not used to being uncomfortable every day like that is not a routine part of their life yeah right yeah but back to this piece that Amy was reading from, I think what's so interesting about it is like, it's what we're dealing with is more so anti-Blackness than anything mm-hmm. else. And so a lot of the times, you know, these organizations, these outlets will be like, well, we have a diverse newsroom. We've got like, you know, they'll 
bring out other people of color who work there who are already like a precious minority, mm -hmm. right? So like they lump all people of color into one group. The LA Times is a heavily black yeah. city and they've got like one black person on the that's Metro desk. Crazy. Like that's a problem, but it, yeah. right. And then they'll be like, oh, but there's, there's 15 people of color on the Metro desk, which is already like a minority. And they'll be like, yeah, it's a minority. We're working on it. But then you dig in deeper and it's like one black person and that's just not acceptable. Yeah. And this isn't, I don't know, I can't speak to the LA Times, but, and this is just an example. I don't know, I don't know the demographics of the Star Tribune, so I'm not at all disparaging them. But like, it's also not enough to be like black, right? Like, Minneapolis is a pretty Somali right. city, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, it, so like, <laughs> like, it, you know, like, you can't bring me there and expect me, I don't, you know, I don't know much about Somali culture. Right. Like, diversity is just more complicated than black or white um you know mary is from mississippi alabama mississippi. both of them <laughs> yeah uh you know i'm from new york and i'm first gen american my parents are from haiti right we have there's you know, big differences in common but we also have differences mm -hmm. yeah but you know my mom thinks she's haitian that's why my middle name is oh, haitian so funny <laughs> really yeah <laughs> from a Haitian novel when <laughs> she studied French. There's like, there's like this long love story between African-Americans specifically in the South and like adoring Haiti. to talk about is like this bigger idea of what the fuck even is objectivity and so this is from a, a reckoning over objectivity led by black journalists by Wesley Lowry since American journalism's pivot many decades ago from an openly partisan press to a model of professed objectivity the mainstream has allowed what it considers objective truth to be decided almost exclusively by white reporters and their mostly white bosses and those selective truths have been calibrated to avoid offending the sensibilities of white readers. On opinion pages, the contours of acceptable public debate have largely been determined through the gaze of white editors. The views and inclinations of whiteness are accepted as objective neutral. When black and brown reporters and editors challenge those conventions, it's not uncommon for them to be pushed out, reprimanded, or robbed of new opportunities. Mm -hmm. Those of us advancing this argument know that a fairness and truth focus will have different healthy interpretations. We also know that neutral objective journalism is constructed atop a pyramid of subjective decision-making. Which stories to cover, how intensely to cover those stories, which sources to seek out and include, which pieces of information are highlighted and which are downplayed. No journalistic process is objective, and no individual journalist is objective because no human being is. Neutral objectivity trips over itself to find ways to avoid telling the truth. Neutral objectivity insists we use clunky euphemisms like officer-involved shooting, Moral clarity and a faithful adherence to grammar and syntax would demand we use words that most precisely mean the thing we're trying to communicate. The police shot someone. Yeah, I think this piece is actually one of the most uh, foundational if you want to understand <laughs> what's happening with our, our media landscape right now, actually. Mm -hmm. Because after reading it, I understand that when people say objectivity... It sounds like it's really what they mean is neutrality, and neutrality is always in service of the status yep. quo. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's, so there's been quite a few different history books that have tried to get at like where objectivity came from and this idea in the press that you should be objective, quote unquote. Um, but mostly it, it seems to have arrived right alongside advertising. <laughs> so, um, so like even from the beginning, it's, it was sort of the idea was to cover up stuff. That's to me, that's the idea of objectivity is mm-hmm. to cover up the truth under under yeah. this kind of mask of, you know, quote unquote balance or objectivity. Humans are not objective. Everybody has personal experiences that they bring to their reporting. And forever the the you know, the idea has been that the the sort of the white and usually male um, experience is the default. And therefore, the sort of center yeah. of objective truth. Um, it's just, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, a lot of people have been arguing for the dismantling of that for a long time. And I hope that this is like the nail in the coffin for it. But we'll see. It's, yeah. yeah. I don't know, because I feel like even after a lot of the papers started kind of properly reporting on what was happening with the protests and, and using the the active voice when describing police behavior instead of defaulting to passive voice. And yeah, I think more recently cutting out the police unions still, I was like going through and still a lot of publications are kind of continuing to do it wrong. This was a really interesting piece to see published in, in the New York times um, because it really is like super critical of the media industry at large and specifically of the New York times And I'm thinking about what you were saying earlier about like media industry doesn't really like to criticize itself. So to me, I don't know, maybe this is just like people, somebody covering their own ass, but it does seem very fascinating to me that they publish something this scathing of the way that news is reporting. It's important to note a couple of things. One, it published in the wake of the Tom Cotton op-ed. So yeah. And the like media fallout, but also like, I think your readers may not know uh, and I feel comfortable saying this because the Daily Beast wrote it up. Otherwise, I don't like airing people's laundry. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, so Wesley Lowry was, uh, he's now at CBS and Quibi, but he was at the Washington Post. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for his work on policing. He did a ton of, he went out to, um, God, where, uh, St. Louis, where did the guy from outside St. Louis live? He was killed four years ago. Ferguson. Ferguson, yeah, thank Ferguson. you. I was like, yeah. too many. There are too many. Yeah. Anyway, he 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 went out to Ferguson and that and he ended up creating this database of policing and it won in the Pulitzer. Uh, and shortly, not shortly after, but at some point afterwards, the New York Times ran a story about the origin of the Tea Party and he wrote a tweet that said, and their origin of the Tea Party completely framed it as a grassroots movement that was about small government and about reclaiming ownership and it completely elided past the fact that there's also a racism element as to why the Tea Party formed because they are worried about losing out as de- demographic shift in the mm-hmm. United States. So Wesley tweeted the, a link to that story and tweeted, put in a comment about how like it doesn't include, it's like ahistorical because it excluded this kind of very key part of the Tea Party identity. He almost got fired over it. Wow. Mm. Um, Marty Barron apparently... I don't, this is all based on reporting. Who's that? Uh, Marty Barron, who's the head of the 
Oh God, I'm so bad. But he's like the head the of the publisher, the of the, editor, editorial yeah, side for the Washington Post. Thank you. He's right? the publisher yeah. of the Washington mm-hmm. Post. Apparently, pulled him into a meeting and was like, "You shouldn't have sent that tweet." Blah 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 blah. And like, came dangerously close to hiring him. And and this is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who's also a, a young black man. He's I think he's barely thirty. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, shortly, not long afterwards. Leslie left, uh, relatively speaking. And, you know, my understanding is that was definitely a factor in his decision to go. Um, but also he was right. Like nothing, he, he got in trouble yeah. for a tweet that was technically accurate. And eventually the New York Times updated their story to include like a sentence about like racial animus or something. But like he fundamentally almost got fired over making a tweet that was factually correct, but made somebody in power uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. So LA Times is going to try to recruit more people of color and more black people. Bon Appetit says they're going to try to do the same thing um, and going to like overhaul its coverage to center rather than patronize the contributions of marginalized people. Um, Washington Post and the New York Times are also uh, trying to do some overhauling of their hiring practices. Um, I know Washington Post is hiring a race in America writer with beats in criminal justice, white nationalism, domestic terrorism, and health disparities. Interestingly, not climate, but we'll get to that. And yeah, the New York Times is trying to get someone at the top of the company. So this sounds a lot to me like what I'm really familiar with in nonprofit spaces, which is like basically creating a diversity officer position. And those can go well, and those can go not well. And yeah, what do, what do we think of these efforts? I think that they will only work if you put people in position with hiring and firing capacity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because oftentimes everybody knows who the toxic person is, but they're in a position of power and they can't be moved. Um, mm-hmm. And so you can't get anything done. Right. With those gatekeepers. Right. And, you know, you know, both of you guys know this, writing it and being added, it is actually a very intimate thing it is and so you have to trust your editor as much as they trust you as a reporter in fact in many ways you actually have to trust your editor more because they get the final say yeah um and so if your editor is problematic if your editor is racist if your editor is sexist if your editor is homophobic if your editor is not receptive to pushback from a reporter because the reporter knows more, which generally, like we do, not in a snotty way, but we were the ones who spent hours and hours and hours actually doing the research mm-hmm. on this topic, then you're still going to get the same final product. And we yeah. know that it has to, like, race, like climate has to be in everything. Exactly. Not, not literally yeah. everything, like, exactly. but, um, but like, it, 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 yeah, it is. A threat, it is right? everything. Like, if you're reporting on housing and you're not, and you don't understand housing discrimination and you don't understand redlining you're going to have a very bad art or unnuanced article, right? Like generally. Yeah, you're probably going to have an inaccurate article that paints an inaccurate picture at picture. best. Yeah. I, I think that like it's very possible for these efforts, if they're not done well, if they're done in this like really reactionary knee-jerk sort of way, it could just become right. a Band-Aid on a gaping right. wound. And I'll, I'll believe these places are serious when they start dismantling their bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. 
because that is really what entrenches and enforces and damn near guarantees white supremacy, right? Because everybody's got like just a little bit enough of power that they can't really do anything except the people who like really want to, you know, enforce the status quo. And those are the people who wind up having all the power. So it's like HR can't really fire someone they know is problematic because of all these other like hoops that they have to go through. And another person has to press another button. And it just like, that is what black people mean when we say the system is racist. Like the system is literally racist. Mm -hmm. And it's another (laughs) element too, which is, um, Media is a very who knows who industry, and I didn't realize that. Yeah. Sometimes you can't fire people because they know where the bodies are buried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's the other yeah. thing. There are some very bad people in media. Yes. That's mm-hmm. a Yes. Thing. Yes. Like, I, <laughs> I, I had been very used to sort of run-of-the-mill kind of fuckery, if that makes any right. sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah. I worked for a person at one point who was – you know, openly kind of sexist, kind of racist, kind of homophobic, like not a nice person. Mm-hmm. Um, but he actually wasn't a bad, I don't know how to say this exactly. He wasn't, a, he, did, he wasn't like a nihilist. Like he didn't, like it was, his worldview was really problematic, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. And I definitely, he wasn't, mm-hmm. this was pre-journalism, just so we're mm-hmm. clear. He was, but, but yeah. like, but it wasn't like he had a messed up worldview, but it's not like something he reveled in. Do you know what I mean? It's not like he went around like, attacking people right like in his free time mm-hmm. right right i'm um, so like i'm not at all like excusing it or anything but like but there are people who genuinely in media who generally enjoy drama yeah. and fuckery mm-hmm. and control over people to a degree that i just did not understand when i became yeah. a journalist i think there's a lot of real like megalomaniacs in media i mean i i really think there's like a lot of ego problems and a lot of like I mean, we saw it a little yeah. bit yeah. in the like post wave of Me Too, yes. right? Like, like there are lots of you know. But but what I'm getting at is there are people who are like maybe not going to sexually harass you, right. <laughs> but that are still like not great right. people, and right, and and I don't know what you do about those people, but those people are often in or not often, but like enough in positions of power, or they're like, or they're only mean to people below them, but not above them. They're like very good right. They're bullies. Power. They're that, bullies. Yeah, that like when you when people come in and say this person is a problem, they're not heard mm-hmm. because the people who have power over that person, to them, that person is great. Exactly. And they've already like sort of painted the people underneath them as like a problem and making it seem like they're doing such a great job to be able to manage with these people. Yeah, that definitely happens. And I think this goes to something else that I've seen you say on Twitter, which is like this weaponization of prestige that happens in media. I've definitely seen it as a freelancer with editors who like, you know, I've ranted about this many times on the show, but like editors who are like, oh, that your experience didn't happen to you. I'm going to edit that out. You're welcome. And then they're (laughs) always shocked as fuck when I yell at them. And like when I fight back, because a lot of people like see the prestige and don't want to fight back or they see like the money and can't fight back. And so, like, they really, like, use their, I'm just going to pick on Condé Nast or Hearst or, like, whatever masthead they have to, like, cower people and silence them. And, like, I could totally see that being used as, like, a really powerful weapon against people early in their career, for sure. And there's a flip side, too, which is, like, when I was approached to source, it's 
easier to say that I work for the New York Times to get them to pick up the phone than when I say I work for popular science. Like that's just a statement yeah. of fact. Um, yeah. And so there's this, you know, like the institution can become your identity. And if yeah. the identity, and so you become terrified of losing that identity, which is to, why to such a degree that lots of times people within institutions, if they're in, because right, like we, we need to be clear, like institutions overall can be problematic, but even within a problematic institution, there are pockets of it that are like not, you know, like mm. there are good managers mm-hmm. or good editors or places where you can find a way to work well within an institution. And so oftentimes when people are working in a situation within some of these prestige institutions that they find untenable, the solution that they find is they just switch beats and they move to a different place. And that allows them to get out of that situation. Um, of course, if you have an expertise or are very well known for that, you're essentially trading off your expertise for that institution, right? Because it takes years to build up an expertise. So mm-hmm. if, you know, if Amy you know, decides suddenly that she really wants to be a fashion reporter, she would have difficulty because nobody knows her as a fashion reporter. Mm-hmm. She has to build up right. sourcing. She has, so you're already kind of putting yourself at a disadvantage. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And you're doing that because you're essentially trading off the work that you're doing for the institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I see so many people doing that yeah. with uh, like big name it's, outlets and it's just like, ooh. yeah. But it is how yeah. the system works. Yeah. I mean, it, it does help you get like your next job. So we are a climate podcast. <laughs> So, yeah, we're all climate people, so let's tie it together. Yeah, I mean, actually, the objectivity stuff, I think, like, is the biggest place where I see so many parallels to climate, like the false balance thing. And I was going to say the same thing, that, like, you know, because of objectivity, I spent something like 20 years, like, elevating climate denial-less messaging that wasn't real, right? Like, they were giving equal weight when we knew even, you know, we knew for quite some time that the climate was warming. Like there wasn't a debate anymore, but you wouldn't know that if reading the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think um, another way that it's related is like the lack of diversity in the newsroom. I think that speaks volumes as to why the concerns of people of color and the disproportionate impacts of climate on people of color and like low income communities really is not covered that well, right? Like I was reading an article about how like hurricane coverage very rarely covers communities of color in any sort of depth. Um, And that's why like people don't make those connections. They don't make the connection between racism and climate because the story is by and large not getting told um, because of who's in the room and who knows to ask what question. Uh, It's not always just who's in the room. It's who will let you do that story. Right. In some newsrooms, and and this is shifting, I think, climate itself is seen as an activist issue. And so when you add climate and you add race, you're talking about two activist issues, and that's too, yeah. too many. And so one of the things that's mm-hmm. really interesting, it would be really fascinating if somebody sat down and quantified if climate coverage this year in particular has changed versus last year. Mm-hmm. So like in terms of covering communities of color, um, because, you know, it is not. The, the, the thing that I don't think is always fully like when you're a freelancer, if you have an idea for a story and you want to do it, you pitch it and you can keep pitching. If you think it's important, you can keep pitching it until somebody says yes. You can find someone yeah. way to yes. But when you're on staff, 
you can pitch an idea and they say no, and you can pitch it and they say no. And that's usually kind of the end of it. Right. And, yeah. and generally you can't it, rules of the newsroom, you know, vary, but like, it can be very difficult for me to take that pitch someplace else. Uh, yeah. of rules around you can't that. just get on medium. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I absolutely think that like who's in the room is absolutely a factor, but I also think that you can have the right people in the room, but if the people in, in editorial positions are the wrong people, their stories still aren't going through. Yeah. So it matters who's in the room and where they sit in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, reverse, yeah, right? because if you have someone with that perspective and they're an editor, they can assign that piece. Right. So it actually, like, right. it doesn't always, it doesn't always go up. It can go down. Right. You know? Right. And I think that has to do with like why so many of the climate stories are just about like regurgitations of scientific reports, because I think a lot of white men sees climate as just like a simple science problem, like put the thing where the thing needs to go. And then like we've got end of problem and they don't see like the bigger political problems with it. They don't see the bigger historical context. And so it's covered in this really technical the balkanization, right? Yeah. Like the political reporters cover the political parts of climate. The science reporters cover the science parts of climate. And then like mm-hmm. the cultural people cover the cultural parts right. of climate. And yeah. if you're a science reporter and you're trying, I can speak from experience, and you're trying to kind of weave together some of the historical and some of the cultural components, you face a lot of yep. pushback, even if you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It also, um, this makes me worry about like how many black writers and journalists have been just pushed out of the industry altogether. Um, because of these toxic uh, work environments. They're toxic and also oh, wow. ha- really hard to make <laughs> yeah. work financially. I mean, it, it's so hard to make a living as a journalist. Yeah. And, and like, it was hard 10 years ago, and it's only gotten worse. And I, I don't know. I, like, I, I don't know how we fix that problem of, like, the deeply entrenched problem of media's business model the fact that it's fundamentally opposed to the role that it should play in society which is to inform people and to shine a light on you know bad behavior and all these things like how can it do that if it's totally um dependent on powerful advertisers or access to powerful politicians and you have to be independently wealthy to work in it you know what i mean like the other thing I want to I want to kind of push back on, it, which this is maybe very like an East Coast thing, but like the L.A. Times um, food editor who allegedly I don't know if you know the full no. sweep, which is he actually lived in New York and he never lived in Ugh. California. That's annoying. Hmm. No, they're <laughs> very annoying. He would buy apparently allegedly. Yeah. I'm going off of the tweets allegedly. Carpet bagger. Once a week and do sort of yeah. like <laughs> or once a month and do yeah, yeah. Uh, once a month for a week. But anyway, apparently he was making $300,000 oh a year. God. And so I, I bring this up because like we often say that there's no money in journalism and that they're like, I'm not minimizing the budget issues and I'm not minimizing the financing issues. Yeah. But I also want to point out that there are some people who are making a ton of money yes. in journalism and also that television journalism, for example, yes. is absurdly profitable yes. or, or like lucrative, you know, and I tweeted this during the elections, but like it makes me bananas every time I watch um, the debates, which is that like, those anchors that are interrogating our presidential candidates about um, their policies and uh, especially as approaching like middle-class Americans or whatever are literal millionaires, right? right? Like, like they're like, like when Elizabeth Warren is on that stage talking about her tax plan, the tax plan that she is floating will hurt their net worth, will hurt the net worth of the anchors that are grilling her, right? It won't hurt my net worth because my net worth is negative. I have student loans. 
Yeah. And TV journalism, that's one we haven't really talked about here yet. I haven't heard much about like this fallout happening with them, but I assume it's coming. And um, they are especially egregious when it comes to climate coverage. Uh, one one thing that I guess I just want to quickly correct, uh, TV reporting actually is a financial problem as like print or new media, which is that like, you know, like the TV anchor for your local station that like probably makes like 30 grand or 40 grand a year. To be clear, he, that guy is not mm-hmm. a millionaire. Right. <laughs> no, that guy is not a millionaire, but Jake Tapper and like the right. ones we know by name, Anderson the Cooper, they probably are. are on like yeah. or MSNBC or whatever. Many of them are yeah. extremely, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly right. wealthy. Um, and I think right. it's just important to point that out, right? Like, like, I don't know. But somehow it's become very gauche to point out that different people have different class interests. What do you call a laughing jar of mayonnaise? Ew. LMAO. <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> Cancelled. Uh, Everyone's heard it here. So a man threw a jar of mayonnaise at me earlier and I was like, what the hell, man? You you're you're cancelled. I've cancelled you both. <laughs> Wait, me? Come on. Okay. No. <laughs> Wait, but like, what did the mayonnaise say when the refrigerator door was opened? Um, I don't know. I, I'm bad at jokes and I hate mayonnaise. <laughs> so neither of these are engendering me to... Close the door. I'm dressing. <laughs> Any leftover cabbage oh can and will be shredded and mixed with mayonnaise is Cole's law. No. <laughs> also, uh, there are... Lots and lots of delicious vinegar-based coleslaws. Thank you. You don't need mayonnaise. You need mayonnaise for nothing. What's the difference between mayonnaise and aioli? Uh, is this a joke, or do you want to know in your life? There isn't a difference. There is and a the difference. joke is, aioli did a semester abroad. <laughs> there actually is a difference. <laughs> What's the difference? Uh, see, you you know my, my mayo hatred is correct, because um, I actually know this. So... Mayo, I believe, is like an emulsion of like egg and oil, but aioli is an emulsion mm-hmm. of garlic and oil. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Oh. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, speaking of eggs, I'm so tired from eating mayonnaise all day. I'm egg saused. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> was the perfect guest to open up season two with. Yeah, I completely agree. And to our listeners, if you have ideas for guests or themes, please do send them to us. You can email us at hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes plural. And you can send in questions for us there. And we might just answer them on the show or in the newsletter. Which you should be subscribed to if you're not already. We have a premium version, which has a roundup of all the great climate coverage of the week and original reporting and commentary from me and Mary. And it's just $7 a month. There are some 
bonus segments to this episode that will be available only for paid subscribers. If you want to hear us talking about the other member of this trio who doesn't drive, guess who it is? And media criticism and why the media is so bad at criticizing itself sometimes. And how problematic stories like that video about how apparently Karen is the worst thing you can be called now. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe to our paid newsletter. And we also have a free version. Yep, we felt really strongly that a story this important shouldn't live behind a paywall. So we produce a free newsletter that has the roundup of stories plus at least one piece of original content from us and teasers for the premium newsletter. The free version is definitely worth your time and the premium version is definitely worth your money. And if you want the premium version but can't afford it right now we totally get that we've been doing at least one weekly giveaway on twitter so definitely make sure you're following us there we're at real hot take yeah and you should follow us individually too i'm at mary hegler and amy is at amy westervelt you should also follow kendra at at kendra writes she's actually become my favorite person on twitter so make sure that you do that totally mine too also don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts it does really help us show up in the search results and find new listeners thanks for doing that okay that's it for this episode be on the lookout for more in the coming weeks. We're also going to play around more with episode links and types of guests we have on the show. So excited to bring all of that to you. Yep, sure are. Okay, talk to y'all again soon. Bye. Bye.